seventh week. Got at least one more week after this, so don't hurry yourselves to finish Genesis 24. Go ahead and turn there. We're in the last two verses of chapter 24 of Genesis. Let's, uh, let's pray and we'll get to it. God, we thank you for, uh, for your word, uh, that we may engage it tonight, and by the work of the Spirit, we may have some understanding. God, we thank you for Jesus, the one who intercedes for us and does not tire of it, uh, the one who provides a way to you, uh, the one who set the example for us, and, and well, we confess we're dependent upon the Spirit, and we beg for you by the work of the Spirit to, to open our minds and to open our hearts and to let us do everything we can in the study tonight to make sure that truth is central and that opinions and ideas and cultural nuances would be uh, in the right place peripherally, that, uh, that they are not central. God, we desire to engage the Word tonight, to hear from you in your breathed-out Word, we desire to be equipped for every good work, as, as it says. God, we thank you for uh, this time tonight that we can speak openly about these beautiful truths that we don't have to whisper. And, uh, and we humble ourselves before you and ask uh, for you to give us insight. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In Genesis 24, at the very end, in verses 66 through 67, we've got this long chapter, 67, make your name great. And so we see this picture of God saying, Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And he's making Abraham's name great for the purpose of Abraham and his family and everyone who hears of Abraham, for the purpose of everyone who is in that place, that they would look at God and say, well, truly, it's the God of Abraham who is great, not just Abraham. And so here, what we see is one of the ways that he, one of the things he uses is this arranged marriage at the end of the chapter. And it's between Isaac and Rebekah. And we see that Eleazar, the head servant of the house, was sent off uh, and took a bunch of camels with him and some gifts and went to the place where Abraham told him to go to find a wife for Isaac. And so it's this long journey. It's drawn out. Prayer is, is something that is common throughout this journey. Diligence is something that's common throughout this journey. And so we see Eleazar. He engages uh, Rebecca, and God answers his prayers. And in fact, we see that God... Uh, has answered his prayers before he's finished voicing them because God reminds us that he knows our deepest needs before we voice them. So there's this long journey where he, Eleazar, the head servant of the house of Abraham, goes and finds Rebekah and brings Rebekah back to Isaac, and they have never met. And so here at the end of chapter 24, we're seeing two people who've never met. They've never spoken on the phone. They've never written letters to each other. They didn't Facebook each other. They don't have any means by which to communicate with each other. And this is their first encounter, and we see love here. And it's weird because it doesn't seem like they would have love so quickly, but they clearly do. So starting uh, verse 62, says uh, in Genesis 24, verse 62, Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Leroy and was dwelling in the Negev. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening, and he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And those camels mean one thing. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Eleazar, who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, it is my master. She took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. He shared the details so that Isaac could worship God in a like manner. And then it says this. 
Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah. And she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So here we see this long journey, this long story of God doing these amazing things, bringing these two people together, and it kind of it ends here with a, hey, how you doing? And they consummate the marriage, and it says that there's love. And the indicator on that, that word love is not that it was a temporary sensation, but that it was a lasting thing, something that, yeah, there was love there, and that's a love that also laughed, lasted throughout that lifetime. And so it, it's, it's interesting because we don't see love in, in light of... All the cultural things that we see about love are very different from what we see here. So we've got to ask this question, what was God doing in this arranged marriage, and how, what can we learn about love from this? Because it, it appears here that there is a will to love, not just a stirring of emotions that said, you're earning my love because of God bringing them together. So last week, what was the quote that I shared uh, last week that may very well be the most uncultural quote I have ever shared in here? Does anyone remember last week's um, very, very uncultural uh, communication about love? Love is an act of the what? The will, as much as it is a stirring of the emotions. And that is one of the most uncultural things I've ever said on a Wednesday night. And why is it so uncultural? What does culture say about what love is and how you keep the coals of love burning and how you can know you really love someone? Come on, y'all are only bombarded with it all day, every day. Emotion, happiness, okay. What? Feelings? Sex appeal? Lots of cash? Good looking? Yes, attractiveness? How do you keep the coals of love burning from a cultural standpoint? Cash? <laughs> cash again? Romance? How does culture define romance? Cash. <laughs> what, what, what was that? How does culture define romance? As long as I'm happy. As long as I'm happy. Yes. As long as you, yes, are meeting every one of my needs. All right. Uh, what do Ephesians 5 and Titus 2 say about the will to love? Go ahead and turn over to Ephesians 5. We went here last week. We put them on our radar. This week we're going to be coming back to them in this crazy... I'll just warn y'all, this is like we're diving in head first tonight um, because the things we're talking about are weird, but biblical, so not too weird, I guess. Uh, in Ephesians 5, we see the call to husbands. 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So we're trying to define what is this love. I want to know what this love is that existed between Isaac and Rebecca. Clearly, God brought them together. If you're sitting where you're sitting and you're thinking that you could do a better job of choosing your spouse than God could, then you're wrong because clearly God does a better job of bringing people together than we could muster no matter how many books we've read about dating or how many self-assessments we've done or whatever you might do. God brings people together in a far uh, more robust way. And here we see this love husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for. And last week we asked the question, has the church ever earned the love of Christ? Have we ever done anything to merit that kind of love? Could we do anything to merit the love of Christ? Is there anything that we have ever done to make Jesus' heart go pitter-patter and him say, I love you so much when you do that? Is there anything we could do to earn it? And then in Titus 2, we see this crazy picture. Go ahead and turn over to Titus 2, just a little bit to the right. 
for the women. And considering what it is to will to love someone, in Titus 2 it says in verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Train the young women to love their husbands and children. That, have you ever considered that in the community of faith, you could be trained by another sinner, an older sinner, a more seasoned sinner, to love your husband and children? Husbands, are you eager to make sure that your wife connects with an older woman within the body so that she might be trained to love you and the kids? This is a way of thinking that I don't think is real normal for us, but here it says that, you could be, that a young woman can be trained to love her husband and children. And what do y'all think of when you think of training? We talked about this a little bit last week. If you're training for something, what are you doing? Push-ups. Push-ups, okay. Work. You're repeating something? What are you pushing yourself beyond? The norm, what's acceptable? Your limits, yeah, your natural abilities. If you're training for something, you're pushing yourself beyond what your natural ability is so that you might get stronger and, and come back and be able to do the thing better that you're training for. It's a matter of, like when you're working out, you're breaking muscles down before they're able to be built back up. You're pushing yourself beyond your natural ability. It takes discipline. Sometimes it hurts you, and it's definitely tiring. So training here, this training to love your husband and children. We're going to come back to it, but now they're on our radar again this week. Before we begin, I want to clear up two things that, that I think could trip us up if, if we don't look at them ahead of time. Tonight, we're going to be looking a lot at the parallels between marriage, family, and the church. There are times when people find that they need to leave their church home in order to find one to which they are equally yoked. And in fact... I think everyone in this room's pretty much done that at some point. At least once, maybe more. Everyone sitting here, we have that in common. Um, however, in marriage, this is not an option that we're given. So as we look at these parallels, don't be thinking, well, I've got to find someone I'm equally... If you're married, you're not given this option in Scripture to just, oh, this is, I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to go over here, and I'm going to go over here, especially not in the way that the church culture is in this town. So tonight, instead of looking at those things, we're going to look at conflict resolution, and how do you resolve conflicts, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in church, in the community of believers, how do we resolve that conflict? So instead of looking at a way out, we're going to look at how do we not even look to a way out, but rather resolve that conflict in a way that um, the sacrifice is selfishness and keeps the truth that God gives to us central in everything. The second thing that we got to look at before we move forward is that of the three controversial, to of the four controversial topics we looked at, do y'all remember what we looked at in these last however many weeks? What were the four controversial things that we talked about? One was arranged marriage. What were the others? Bride price, dowry, and polygamy. Okay, so there were four weird things that we talked about. Um, arranged marriage, dowry, and bride price are things that we see God using directly to accomplish His purpose. They're in line with the high view of family that is right. Hear me on this. One of those four things is not like the other three. One of these things is not like the other. The three, arranged marriage, dowry, and bride price, all in their original forms, they're, they're in line with the high view of family that is right. Polygamy has a high view of family, but it's a high view of family that's held wrong. 
Okay, I want to make sure this is clear before we move on because I've been sharing those four in a like manner, but one of them is very much different than the other three, and it is actually going to inform our study tonight. In this case, we see God working in spite of people who have turned from his original design as it's been modeled with Adam and Eve, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah. So don't think that I'm giving like, yeah, polygamy's good too. I'm not saying that. And I want us to be clear in that, yes, there's a high view of family in polygamy, but it's held wrong. This is weird. Arranged marriage, dowry, and bride price in their original forms all shared a high view of marriage rightly. Polygamy in its original form was perverted from the get-go. So my question is, can you guys think of examples where you can have a high view of something that's wrong? Like a high view of something that's good, but you're holding the high view of it wrong. I'll share the first one, and we'll see if we can get the ball rolling on this. The bumper sticker, my kid can beat up your honor student. (laughs) It's good to have a high view of your kid, right? You should have a high view of your children. But you're holding it wrongly if that high view finds itself executing on your kid beating up some other kid's honor student. How can we have a high view of certain things in a wrong way? Consider kids, consider family, consider work. How can we have a high view of work in the wrong way? Okay, and what are some of those things that we sacrifice for work that maybe... Okay. So you could have a real high view of work. You, you could have this view that I want to be a diligent person. I want to be a person who works in such a way that I put um, on display how great God is by how diligent I work, how thorough I am, how I pay attention to detail, how I care about my fellow coworkers. Well, you can have a good high view of work, but you can also hold that high view wrongly. What about uh, family? How has the mafia had a high view of family that may be held wrong. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 So it's a high view of your kid, a high view of family, but it's not held in quite the right manner. A lot like polygamy here. What about uh, kids, family, work? Um, what's, what does that produce? What kind of results does that produce when you have a high view of something wrongly? Vain. That's the word I was looking for. You read my notes. Fantastic. Yeah. There you go. You read the email. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, this produces individualism and it produces no real results. This is called vanity. The definition of vanity is having or showing an excessively high opinion but producing no real result. Polygamy. The results produced from that are not all that great, are they? Having a high view of of, uh, something in the wrong way, be it work. You can produce these results at work, but it turns out maybe that wasn't the most important thing. If you sacrificed your family on the altar of work, If you have this high view of family where you don't ever let anybody else in, there's some families that are so tight 
that they don't let anybody else in. And if anybody else does come in, like let's say an in-law, like someone marries and they come in, it's like throwing the whole thing out of whack. And there's all this tension within the family because this family can have this high view of itself, but maybe not quite in the right manner. That's vanity. Having or showing an excessively high opinion, but producing no result. Psalm 127. Go ahead and turn there. This is a very, very important deal. As we're talking about love and marriage and family and church, Psalm 127 reminds us of something that we can get so, we can get so wrapped up in the action of life, the action of family, the action of work, the action of, of marriage and, and church that we can forget this. But Psalm 127, 1 through 2 says, Unless the Lord builds the house... Those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. There's that in vain thing again. So we have to ask this question, if we look at this, how can I have a home that's being built by God in faith and not by me in vain? How can I have a place where my family grows up and in a church as well? What does it mean to have a a right high view of marriage, family, and the church is what we're asking from this. How can I have a home where I'm not working hard and doing things in vain, producing the wrong results because I have a high view in a wrong way, but how, how can I have a home where it's being built by God in faith rather than me in vain? Um, the, 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 Adverse question here is that what happens if the Lord doesn't build the house? We looked at this last week. I would like to look at it again. What happens if the Lord doesn't build the house? What if we abandon his design and do our own thing and follow our own emotions and our own preferences? Will it really look any different? And turn to Exodus 34. And this is a very, very, very strong picture with strong wording um, of what happens when we shelve God's design and either do our own thing or do what culture tells us to do. Exodus 34, verses 12 through 16. This is right after the part that uh, that Ben shared uh, two weeks ago in a sermon where Moses is interceding uh, for the people, and they're they're hard-hearted, and they're thick-skulled, and they're sinners, and at one point, it's just like, oh, how much longer? And he tires of it, and we get this reminder that Christ does not tire of interceding for us. And here, as we see what we are we have a propensity towards because of our sin. We see this picture in Exodus 34, and it says this in verse 12. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. So it's saying you are a covenant people. Your story is the story of a people. It's not the story of an individual. Your story is the story of a people. You're a covenant people, and you need to take care lest when you go out into the world or go to this new land or move to a new city or get a new job, whatever it might be, be careful because you're a covenant people, and you could make the horrible mistake of going into that place and making a covenant with the culture that's there and forsaking the covenant that you have as one of God's children. So you've got to be careful about that. And then it goes on to explain, lest it become a snare in your midst. What is a snare? We talked about this last week. A trap. Have you ever seen like a snare that catches a bear where it's like just it doesn't turn out well for the bear? It's telling you don't make a covenant with the culture because it's a trap. It's not going to work out well. It's a snare. It's going to rip your leg off. You shall tear it, tear down their altars and break down, break their pillars and cut down their ashram for you shall worship no other God for the Lord God whose name is jealous is a jealous God. 
lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. The word whore is used like eight times. That's a strong word. And it's, and it's used because it's, it's necessary. This is God's breathed out word. He doesn't repeat things just because he can't find a better word in his brain. He uses that word over and over again because what this is painting a picture of is that if you forsake the covenant that you have with God and you put it on the shelf and you decide that design, it, it's just, it's, it's old news. It doesn't work. I'm going to do my own thing for my family, for the church, for my children. What you can end up doing is making a covenant with the culture. And what happens is that the culture will go to whore after their gods, and they'll send you an invitation. And you're going to RSVP, and you're going to go with them to the party, and you're going to whore after their gods, which could be their view of what marriage is, their view of whatever it is. Whoring after their gods is worshiping any other god than the one true god. And then it says that as you do that, you'll get to know their families, and then, and then you'll take of their daughters, and you'll marry your sons to their daughters, and your daughters to their sons, and then they'll go and do the same thing that you did. It's painting this very sobering picture of what happens if God is not the one who builds the house. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. And this is the vanity that it, we're talking about. The results that are produced are not good. But there's still a high view of what's going on. So, we're a covenant people. Our story is the story of a people. So, we should care about if the family flourishes. This is something we've heard again and again and again, and you're going to hear it again tonight. We should care about if the family flourishes. And we should consider how we are to rightly flourish by God's standard and not the culture's. So that's what we're talking about tonight. How do I flourish as if, how do I do this? This says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. That's hard. That's difficult. I shared the story last week about me getting up at my brother's wedding thing, rehearsal dinner, and putting my foot in my mouth and saying, you know, Cody, you're called to love your wife as Christ loved the church, and that's hard. And the whole room erupted in laughter and then looked at my wife with longing sorrow, like, he shouldn't have said that. I'm so sorry. That's so embarrassing. But it's hard. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. He died. That was the next thing I said before I sat down and shut up. I was like, he died. All right, I'm done. I made a mess of this. And so... Um, uh, we should care about if the family flourishes, and, but what we're looking at tonight is how, how do we do this? How do we rightly flourish? How do we hold a high view of family and church and marriage without doing it the wrong way? How do we submit to a design that is God's design? How do we have the will to love so that we can go through the times where we have a difference of opinion? That's what we're talking about tonight. So here's our transition where we see this parallel between marriage and the church. We see it in Ephesians 5. We see it in Titus 2. In Ephesians 5, it's husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's a, that we see this intersection. And there's a parallel going on as well between marriage and the church. We see it in Titus 2. The older women in the church, Titus was written so that they would know what the order is supposed to be in the church. Like, as you're setting up church and you're getting this thing going, there's an order. And if things are rightly ordered in that, Older women are going to be teaching younger women within the order of the church how to love their husbands and their children. So we see this intersection again in this parallel. Marriage in the church. In Ephesians 5, husbands are commissioned to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So marriage between a man and a woman, feel the weight of this, is the very thing that God has designed to communicate the relationship that exists between Christ and the church. That's a big deal. We should care about marriages flourishing. Why flourish? I want us to just put it out of our heads. Marriage, church, and family are not separate spheres of life. 
They have everything to do with each other. Everything Scripture says, the very language that's used about the house of God and the families, and we're going to see it again in, in Timothy, we're going to see it in these other places, that they have everything to do with one another, and they are not separate spheres of life. And in fact, we could draw the conclusion from that that there cannot ever be a healthy church made up of unhealthy families. That doesn't exist. We desire for the church to be healthy, right? Because the church is putting on display the glory of God and saying, look how great our God is. And if our families are a train wreck, we're not saying that. We're saying, eh, mediocre, ho-hum, we'll see how it goes, hopefully it gets better. If our families are a train wreck, we're not going to have a healthy church. It doesn't exist. It can't exist. So interestingly, and this is the transition we made last week, we're looking at it closer this week. As church has become less about the family and more about the individual, marriage has followed suit and become less about the family and more about the individual. For most of recorded history, marriage has been all about the family. I painted this picture last week of the dad who just utterly loathes the idea of his daughter getting married. Why does he utterly loathe that idea? Or am I the only one? Yeah, yeah. Normally, it's not normal to hear mom and dad, what do you, what do you think about this guy? It's even less normal for, to hear mom and dad, can you help me find the right person? How many times have you heard that? Normally, what you hear is, uh, this is who I love, and if you don't like them, I don't care, but we're going to be together, and if you want to be a part of our life, you're going to have to make that decision, and there's all of a sudden this huge gap between the family, and it's like, what in the world just happened? And so there's, a lot, there's this tension in the relationship where men hate the idea of their daughters being married off because there's such uncertainty about if the guy is right or wrong because he hasn't had a chance to, to get to know the guy. And so there's total uncertainty there, but there was a time where, husband, where uh, dads... Uh, eagerly anticipated their daughters marrying the right guy. That, that, was, that was something that was pleasing to guys. But most guys I know are like, uh-uh, 37, 38, she can start dating. We'll see what happens after that. But they hate the idea of all of that. And so what I'm getting at here is that it was only within the last few hundred years that marriage has just become so much more individualistic in, its, in, in, in what it is as far as the culture is concerned. And I think it's interesting because I think that marriage has followed suit from what's happened at the, in the church in large part. And that's a big statement. We're going to talk about that. We're going to look at the details. But as, as the church has become less about the family and more about the individual, marriage has. What are some examples that y'all can think of about how in large part church has become very individualistic? I'm going to let y'all say it. Okay, in it for what it does to, to you, like, but... What is it, what's in it for me? That's like the only question that can be asked sometimes, okay? Music. You know, I had lunch with Patrick today. We talked about it. Do what? Popularity. Yeah. 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 Is that just so weird to anybody else? No, that's very normal. What are some other ways we're individualistic as a church? Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
that we are absolutely silly in the way that we segregate ourselves and become individualistic in our thinking as a church. I was thinking about all the different things where we have shown individualism rather than promoting the family. And uh, one thing is target groups. There are churches, that, and we even had talk like this early on in the days of Crosspoint, where it's like, what's our aim? What's our target? How about, how about people? <laughs> how, about, how about people? We'll leave it at that. Um, but, I mean, there's, you hear people, we're a young church, we're, we, we're, we really try to draw the young crowd, the hip people, um, okay? Or we're an old church. Crosspoint was an old church at, at first. It used to be Bethel Baptist, and when Ben moved here with his two-year-old and his three-year-old, uh, the median age was still 62, and it was an older, an older crowd. Um, we're a black church. We're a white church. That's kind of a rich church. Oh, that's a poor church. Uh, that's where the pretty people go. Uh, that I grew up in one of the weirdest youth groups in the world. I, I am convinced it is just a freak show of a youth group. And, I, and like I can turn on the TV almost any day and see someone from my youth group either in a tabloid, a music video. It was like Hollywood youth group or something. It was just bizarre. It's just a very weird youth group. And I remember, um, I remember a guy who's now a pretty prominent author and you know, traveling speaker guy he came to speak at one of the camps, and he came, and, uh, and he was like, he got up, and he's looking at this room full of 300 youth, three, 400 youth, and he goes, what, where's all the ugly people? I was like, I'm here, I don't know, but, <laughs> but it, he was making this, this uh, he was drawing this, this picture out that this is a youth group that there's like a lot of pretty people, and they bring their pretty friends, and, and what's going on? Youth groups are notorious for this kind of segregation. Like, our youth groups, man, we, we really focus on the athletes. Okay, why? Well, what good does that do you? But the, there's entire youth groups made up of these athletes who bring their athlete friends and all, their, all the metaphors that are used on a Wednesday night when they're segregated from the rest of the church is athletic metaphors. And, uh, and they have, like, arm wrestling matches and things to bring people together, and it's, and it's really neat, and everyone goes and plays basketball afterwards. Um, or there is the, the, we're the, we're the artsy youth group. We try to, we try to really draw on the artistic, you know, the, the, the singers and the, the poets and the people, the, you know, the people who are in drama class. We try to draw the, it's like, why are we so segregated in our thinking? Youth groups are really, really bad about this. I don't know how many uh, parents I talked to way, way before I even came here um, where I heard, you know, you know, my son is just, he's not an athlete and he just doesn't fit in here. It's like, that's the saddest statement ever. That should not be a means by which a young man should try to fit in, is, is this weird dynamic. Uh, another individualistic thing that we can be as a church is music style, Patrick. Um, consider music style. Some churches are defined by this. What kind of church you got? Well, we, we have like postmodern, emergent, post-eclectic, something or rather worship. Okay, what, what kind of, what church, what, what denomination? We, we have drums, we have a drummer, and we have an electric guitar, and our worship guy wears blue jeans. Um, it, it, we, we have this music style that churches are oftentimes defined by, or um, what's, well, what's funny about that is that most music style, especially in worship, has a shelf life of like a few years. 
Most music styles, especially in worship, have a shelf life of a few years. What we sang 10 years ago is old news. 10 years ago, I was so happy trying to sing, I could sing of your love forever, forever. I was so happy just repeating it, I could sing of your love forever. Let's do it again. I could really sing your love forever. And you go on and on. If I did that on a Sunday morning, y'all be like, shut up. Play something new. Give me a break. There's a shelf life to music. And how weird is it that we would allow our churches to be so individualistic that we define ourselves by, we have, we're, our church is defined by this kind of music. Uh, what we uh, sang 10 years ago is old news. Uh, Bob Coughlin has a great quote. He says, music is a servant to words. Music is a servant to words. So in our worship ministry, one of the things that we do here is we don't only focus on the music. Music is one means by which we can worship God, but music is a servant to words. So when we're assessing the songs we're going to do, we don't just say, ooh, that's catchy. Let's play that. We look at the words. What is it saying? What is it communicating? Because what we want to do is get to the heart of the matter. We want to get to the issue at hand, not, not this peripheral issue of just music style. Uh, focus on the heart of the matter and not too much on these peripheral issues. Music is a servant to words. And then I also take the example from Sunday sermon. An individualistic church is made up of families who think that they can experience the fullness of Christ without others. Or it's made up of individuals who think that they can experience the fullness of Christ without others. That's an individualistic church. The things I've been describing are not an anomaly. That's very normal in the culture we live in to define churches by those individualistic things. We're a young church. We're an old church. That's as dumb as saying we're a tall church and we're a short church. We should not draw those lines between ourselves. So, uh, we're going to define each of these things so that we can continue to look at this dynamic between church and, and marriage and family. Similar words have been spoken by the unhappy individualistic spouse and the unhappy individualistic church member. Last week, one of the things we looked at was a definition of each of these. How would y'all define an unhappy individualistic spouse? What are some character traits that would define them or words that they would say or actions you would see from an unhappy individualistic spouse? And just like last week, just because you talk doesn't mean you're married to one. Unhappy individualistic spouse. Define. My needs aren't being met. I never get any time for myself. I saw like four people elbow. I'm not going to say who. I saw that. Yeah. Yeah. Go to Salado. Find yourself. Okay. What are some things that, what are some phrase, uh, what are some things, how do they approach the children, an unhappy individualistic spouse? Yeah, how do you know? <laughs> That's a good answer, but how do you know? Yeah, yeah, it can't be true for everybody's sanity, but the unhappy individualistic spouse will say it every day. Yeah. Yeah, that's your daughter. Go get it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, how would y'all define an unhappy individualistic church member? My needs aren't being met, okay. Music's too loud. Never heard that. There's no organ. Yeah, that message must have been completely worthless because I didn't get anything out of it. Yes. What are some other things you hear from the unhappy individualistic church member? I don't fit in. Nobody talks to me. The pew is a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Especially as long as Ben talks. He's right behind you. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What, what I'm getting at is that the lingo is the very, is the same. And it's not a hard stretch for us because I think if we're all honest, we've all found ourselves in the spot of being either the unhappy individualistic spouse for a season or the unhappy individualistic church member for a season. I can almost guarantee we've all been there because I don't know if anyone's sitting in this room where this is their first church home. The reality is that's not the case. This is similar. Uh, the, the, these two things are similar. The unhappy individualistic spouse, the unhappy individualistic church member will all essentially say at some point in time, you're not making me happy, so I'm going to go look elsewhere. You're not making me happy, I'm going to go look elsewhere. If you foster that individualistic, unhappy state, that's where you're going to end up, is you're not making me happy, I'm going to go look elsewhere. So it's interesting that I think the church will have the opportunity to set things straight. If, if, if marriage has followed the church and being individualistic rather than about the family, I, I think that the church has an opportunity here to set things straight, especially since in large part the church has caused a problem. I want to paint a picture for y'all. Just go with me on this. I want y'all to think about the beauty of multiple generations worshiping in the same church body. Multiple generations worshiping in the same church body. You might have to think hard about it because you may not have ever seen it. In fact, um, the advice that I was given when I was a 23-year-old who just got married was, you need to get as far away from your family and your church so that you can make a name for yourself. I was told that by a guy I respect immensely. You need to get as far away from your family and your church so you can make a name for yourself. Leaving and cleaving does not necessarily include your church home. To leave mom and dad and to cleave to your spouse is a good thing, but that does not mean leave the church you grew up in or consider that everything you learned from the church you grew up in is just total rubbish. I went through that phase where the church I grew up in, I left, and I took that advice, and I left, and God used it for good, I think, I hope. But I, I can look back and realize that everything that went on there was not just dumb and stupid and, and, and not worthwhile. There was so much more going on there than I realized because maybe I had a bad attitude where I was. But here, over the years, if we have multiple generations worshiping together in the same church body, over the years, you've learned to work through differences without parting ways. You've learned to work through differences without parting ways. How easy it has become for us to part ways with a loved one. A parent or sibling says one wrong or hurtful thing, and years pass without any quality communication, all the while letting the root of bitterness go deeper and deeper. A close friend says something hurtful, maybe on purpose, maybe inadvertently, and you stop returning phone calls and emails, only to get years down the road wondering how you could possibly be so distant from the one that you were once so close to. This happens a lot. Again, this is not an anomaly either. We probably all know someone or are that person who've experienced this. Just as marriage has a honeymoon period, we have adopted the same lingo into the church. We've done the same thing. Let me ask you all a question. How do you know when the honeymoon period is over? Reality seeks in. Sober-minded. The two single guys are answering. How do you know the honeymoon period is over? Not satisfied anymore. Ah, seeing things in people you don't like. Are you, I mean, <laughs> Bill, it sounds like you just said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> things that used to be cute and adorable are now annoying. 
good. That's good. Encourage her to speak up. Um, yeah, the honeymoon period is over when the conflict comes into play and you realize that we have conflict and we're going to have to resolve it. Um, th th this is a very clear indication that the honeymoon is over. But we have the same lingo with the church. You find a church home, a place where you see eye to eye with those you're worshiping and walking with, and, and you usually say something along the lines of, finally, finally I found what I've been looking for. What my heart has always longed for, but never known. In fact, I never knew that I could feel this way until it happened. And then one or two years into this relationship, someone does or says something that you really disagree with. You may even be angered or hurt by the disagreement. But because it is so hard to talk through these differences gently, humbly, remaining searchable, remaining teachable, open to reason, that you decide it would be best to try and leave quietly. But when you do leave quietly, what do you leave in your wake? We've all done it or experienced it. Burn bridges, pain. What else do you leave in your wake? Unresolved issues. What else do you leave in your wake? Sorrow. What else? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's awkward. Turn the corner. Weird. When you do so, you're leaving. You're, you're. There's a ripple of heartache, frustration, and misunderstanding. And what I want us to put out of our minds is, it's not noble. When you get to a place where you're like, man, I got some differences here, and there's, and it's hard. Leaving quietly is not noble. I've seen more heartache in this church from people leaving quietly and thinking it's noble. It's not noble, and it's not best. And how much better it would be to consider the community of faith in the same way you would consider a whole family rather than leaving quietly. Yeah. Yeah, and we're actually going to talk more about that as we talk about this conflict resolution and some of the things we are held accountable for. At this point, as we're talking, I kind of hope that the lines have blurred. I hope you're thinking, wait, are we talking about marriage? Are we talking about church? Which one are we talking about? I hope the lines are blurring a little bit. And when Paul was asked the same question, are we talking about marriage? Are we talking about church? His answer was yes, because there's so many similarities and they so inform each other. Um, so how do we keep from buying into the lie 
the lie that there must be something to run to that will make me happier than this, how do we keep from letting our eyes wander to another woman, another man, or maybe even another church? How do we keep that from happening? And I think that our answer is in what we're seeing here in this love that exists by an act of the will and in balance with the emotion and the passion. Our answer is the will to love with a hope to flourish. How do we balance this? How do we do this rightly? We must have a will to love that goes beyond the pitter-patter of an emotion. Emotion is real. Passion is real. But it is limited to the will that you have to love the people in your church body, your spouse. Like, you'll never have a point where your passion and and emotions are here and they're rightly defined and your will to love is way down here. That doesn't exist because there's hard times. There's conflict. And so the will to love with a hope to flourish, how would we define flourish? How do we define a church that's flourishing? I'll tell you how not to define it. I recently went to a conference and a flourishing successful definition, the definition of flourishing and success is numbers. Oh, it's big, it's huge, that must be great. That is not a good definition of flourishing. I think the way that we can define flourishing is how we started off in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Is the Lord building the house? Is he getting the glory from his design? Because guess what? You shelve his design, try your design, It does not give him the glory that he deserves. And so how do we define that flourishing? we got to define it by the way that God set the whole thing up. Ravi Zacharias, in talking about this love, this will to love, which is so uncultural and so weird to think about, he says, love is hard work. Like, that's so, if I go to Walmart and go up to someone and say, hey, i got to work really hard to love my wife, they're going to look at me like I'm a total weirdo, mainly because I don't know them and we're talking about deep issues. But but like, if you even just saying to someone you know, it's really hard to love my spouse. I got to work hard at it. That's not normal to us. That there's something within us that says, should you be saying that? Is that is that appropriate? And he said, Ravi Zacharias in the book I uh, Isaac Taylor says, love is hard work. I would carry it one step further. He says, it is the hardest work I know of. Work from which you are never entitled to a vacation. You take on burdens and cares. You inherit problems. You have to feel beyond yourself. You have to think of, greater, of things greater other than yourself. Your responsibilities are now multiplied, and you are trusted with greater commitments. When you get married, it's not just, well, they're going to have to get used to me. <laughs> You're going to have to get used to them and their family and their friends and their coworkers. There's just this huge coming together of things that there's going to be controversy. There's going to be differences. And, um, and one of the things I want us to look at tonight is that if we submit to God's design, the will to love will keep us from parting ways over the difference of opinion. Hear me out on this. If we submit to God's design, the will to love will keep us from parting ways over the difference of an opinion and It'll help us to hold, a high va- hold high the value of truth as it's revealed by God. In 1 Timothy 3, you don't have to turn there, verses 14 through 15, he says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. Again, listen to the lingo. Unless the home, house is built by the Lord, the labors, labor in vain. In the household of God, the church, you're supposed to exist in this way and behave in this way. And he says, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. Everyone knows what a pillar is. Does anyone know what a buttress is? Jeff thought you're not allowed to answer this. <laughs> a buttress is the thing that goes here. It's like a pretty piece of architecture. Usually you drive under our bridges, we have pillars. We don't have buttresses. We see them a lot in Europe. 
But the pillar is this. The buttress adds even more strength, and it's a beautiful piece of architecture, and it goes out like this. The pillar and the buttress of what? The church is the pillar and buttress of what? Truth. Truth must remain central, not our opinions. We're going to go for about eight more minutes. It's going to go a little bit over seven, but we got to get this. The church exists as a pillar and buttress of truth, keeping truth central. Um, it's not a matter of eliminating conflict. Like the, the joy doesn't come from having a conflict-free life. That's, 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 a, that's a, a fairy tale. That doesn't exist. The, the, it's not a matter of eliminating conflict, but approaching the inevitable conflict rightly. There's conflict resolution that we have to have. We've got to keep truth central and our opinion not central. We've got to be able to meet this conflict um, in the right way. In Conflict Resolution 101, if you were to go to counseling or if you've ever even talked to a friend, this is just a natural thing. Conflict Resolution 101, get to the heart of the matter. Just get, Let's get to the heart of the matter. You may go into a counseling session and if you were to go, one of the first things that will happen is trying to get to the heart of the matter, the real issue. Let's work first to talk about the issue at hand rather than how everybody feels about the issue. We'll talk about the feelings, but let's see what the issue is. And in fact, sometimes we have feelings that we can't even explain. We're bitter or angry or depressed or something, some kind of feeling that is so strong, but we can't explain it because we don't know what issue it's linked to. So conflict resolution 101 is get to the heart of the matter, cut to the issue. The point is to assess the tension that is in the relationship and decide if the tension exists. And hear me out, this is really important. Assess the attention that's in the relationship and figure out, does that tension exist because of the issue or does it exist because of my disposition to the issue? Like, is this a matter of the actual issue at hand or is it a matter of my disposition to the issue? Because when we get married or when we join a church, we come in and everybody in this room has a different opinion about everything right now. If we keep the truth central, we see that we're fostering that unity that we have in Christ, but we can have many different opinions, many different dispositions to different issues. And so when there's tension in a relationship, whether it's in marriage, whether it is in uh, a church, you've got to ask, is this a matter of the issue or my disposition to the issue? Like for me, when Christmas time comes around, that's a real easy example. There's tension because you've got a family and I've got a family, but we're supposed to, it's supposed to be our family, but they're over here and we're over here. How do I do this? My disposition is I want to have Christmas with my mom and dad and my brothers at my mom and daddy's house. Is that a reality? Every stinking year? No. But that's certainly my disposition to the issue. But rather than having tension in my marriage because of my disposition to wanting to be with my mom and my dad and my brothers at my mom and dad's house every single Christmas morning, that's my disposition to the issue. But we can get to the issue at hand and actually make some progress. Is it a matter of the truth being mishandled and God being misrepresented or is it a matter of a difference of opinion? We got to call that into question. When there's a difference between us and a brother or sister in the body, us and the leadership in the body, us and our spouses, us and our children, the tension that exists, is it because of the actual issue or just your disposition to the issue, your opinion? You can get into a huge fight over where you want to eat dinner. Get to the heart of the issue and you can get rid of all the tension because it's just a matter of you liking this restaurant and this person liking this restaurant. But you can get into a huge argument over where to have dinner. We should take the same approach to finding a church home. There's always going to be differences. 
But are they differences between convictions or opinions? The truth must be central, like it said in Timothy. The truth must be central. When we elevate our opinion to the point of truth, we become judgmental. You take your opinion, and here's truth, and it's central, and you move truth out of the way, and you put your opinion as central, that makes you a big judgmental person. I've been there. I've experienced it. If I put my opinion in the place of truth, and I make it central, I become judgmental. Why? Well, if I hold my opinion uh, as truth, it's very easy for me to very judgmentally say, you're wrong, I'm right. Why is it so easy to say that? Because my standard for rightness is my opinion. Do y'all see that? You put your opinion in the place of truth, you become judgmental because you say, you're wrong and I'm right. And the reason is, is because my standard of rightness is my opinion, so I'm always going to be right. If we can take that and shelve it and keep truth central and say, is this the issue or is it my disposition to the issue? then what we'll find is that we can actually get to the heart of the matter. And look, and we have a standard for truth. God's breathed out word that we can go to. Rather than arguing and quarreling over opinions like Scripture warns us against, don't get quarreling over opinions and words and things or wrapped up in endless genealogies, but let's keep truth central. Let's not talk about opinion all the time. You live in a community where there's almost 100 church buildings, and most of the division that happened, it was not multiplication, most of the division happened, happened over opinion, not truth. Over, I don't like the color of the wall, I don't like the color of the carpet, I don't like you. And truth, shelved, opinion, central, there's a big fat judgmental church community for the community to look at and say, why is the church so judgmental? What are we accused of all the time? So we can check ourselves here by assessing our will to love. Ask this question. Do I feel that I am in a good standing with my spouse and my church just because they agree with my opinions and that's pleasing to my emotions? Like when someone agrees with your opinion, that's pleasing to your emotions, right? That stirs up your emotions. Honey, I want to go to Cracker Barrel. That sounds great. (laughs) That makes me happy. You notice all my examples are where to eat. Um. But if I say, I want to go to Cracker Barrel, and I've already gotten in my mind that fried chicken that they sell, and then my wife says, I want to go to, uh, to Molly's. There's something in me that's like, oh, that makes my emotions sad. I want a chicken. But there's got to be a will to love that goes beyond the stirring of the emotions. So we ask, do I feel like I'm in a good standing with my spouse and my church just because they agree with my opinions and that's pleasing to my emotions? Or am I constantly mindful that my opinion may very well be wrong? So I need to assess each situation with an attitude of teachability and searchability. Because as we said on Sunday, a spouse only experiences the fullness of who they are in Christ with the other spouse. A church member only experiences the fullness of who they are with the other church members in Christ. A family at a church only experiences the fullness of who they are in Christ with the other families in the church. So we need to go into every situation, like, If you read that piece of scripture that says, welcome the weaker brother, but not to quarrel over opinion, but to to show love, and and it goes on to explain a lot of other things right there. If you always view the other person as the weaker brother, you're wrong. When you read that piece of scripture, you need to always say, in any given situation, I may very well be the weaker brother. I may be the one who's being welcomed. And I may learn something if everyone here can keep truth in the center and not opinion. But if we shove the truth and we put our opinion in the center of things, then we're judgmental and we're not going to reach a, uh, a, a, uh, an existence which is glorifying to God according to his design. So when we ask how does one will to love, it's, this is where we're going to go next week. How does one will to love? In John 6.38, and this is what we're closing with, 
Uh, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. What does that mean? Well, Christ loved the church by not coming to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. And so, husbands, if you're going to love your wives as Christ loved the church, you're going to die to your own will. You're going to die to your selfishness. That's a sacrifice. And you're going to die to that, and you're going to love as Christ loved. And it's interesting because we got to ask that question, and this is, again, this is where we're going to go and what we're going to be talking about next week with the family. Mike and Linda Cardwell are going to be uh, sharing some things, not because they've got it all figured out, but because they've got over 30-something years more experience in marriage than I do, and, uh, and, and I think this body would benefit from hearing from them. But one of the things we're going to be looking at is how much harder it is to die daily than to just die once, to live a life of death for the good of the whole, not just yourself, not being individualistic, but for the good of the church community, for the good of your marriage, for the good of your family, for the good of friendships, to die to yourself daily following the example that Christ set for us. And it's interesting because in Luke 22, we ask, we ask this question, did Jesus ever sacrifice his will for the good of the people? Did he ever sacrifice his will for the good of the church? Because we're to love our wives as Christ loved the church. And it says, Jesus says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You'll see that? <laughs> Yes, it's hard to love your wives as Christ loved the church. Here we see Christ saying, remove this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. And so we see him setting that example for us uh, that we have in marriage and, and family. And next week, we're going to keep talking about it and, and kind of wrap some of these things up. But I just want us to see in closing that we must keep the truth central. That's why the church exists. If these are in right order, we're keeping the truth central. And if the truth is kept central, then husbands are loving their wives as Christ left the church. If the truth is kept central, then older women are training younger women to love their husbands and children. And if the truth is kept central, then our opinions are not causing us to part ways for no good reason at all. I think keeping the truth central will cause is one of the ways that in Ephesians 4 where it says you don't create unity in Christ, but you have perfect unity in Christ as a gift from God, and you do everything you can to preserve that unity. I think one of those ways that we can preserve the unity that we have in Christ as a body of believers and families who are believing is to shelve the opinions and make, keep truth central. And when there's tension in the air between you and a brother or sister in Christ, you and your spouse, ask the question, does this tension exist because of the actual issue or just my disposition to the issue? And it's a very hard question to ask, and it's going to take a sober mind to ask that question. Being sober-minded is huge in this. Because if you're not sober-minded, you're not, you're not going to ask that question. You're just going to give your opinion, and you're going to get mad when someone doesn't like your opinion. So uh, we'll hang around afterwards for a little bit. Uh, let's pray. Uh, God, I am keenly aware of how hard this is, and uh, we can talk about it, but I don't even know what it would look like if there was actually a hundred families shelving opinions and keeping truth central and submitting to one another and making sacrifice for each other regularly and intentionally. And just as in marriage, we can't take a vacation for marriage, we have to be in a constant assessment of what's going on. I pray that we would see the, the parallels with marriage and church, and I pray that we would humble ourselves before you and submit to your design. God, we confess full on, unless you build the house, we are building it in vain. We're raising up our families in vain. We're having conversations with our kids in vain if we're not submitting to your design. God, we love you so much. 
I am so thankful for the church. And God, I thank you for this church. I'm so thankful for the people that I know, that I've walked with, that I've learned from, that have held me accountable, that have called me out when I needed to be called out, that have pushed me when I needed to be pushed, that have encouraged me when I needed to be encouraged, that have shut me up when I needed to be shut up. I'm so thankful for the people that I've gotten to engage here. And I pray that you would help us to be steadfast in submitting to your word rather than just offering up our opinion on what it says. God, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.